Last time on The Big Switch. Before, I, I had gas in my house. But after Russian invasion, I decided myself to cut off from, from gas. Everyone wants to buy electric heaters, but it's completely sold out. Last year, Poland was the leader of the sales of heat pumps in the world. Those heat pump installations will translate into significantly reduced requirement uh, for natural gas or electricity. Fewer and fewer young people are choosing to get training in professions such as heating and plumbing fitter. If this trend continues, it will eventually affect everyone. Of the 15 bottleneck trades in the energy transition, the two main uh, ones are electricians and heating installers. So yeah, it's pretty dire. If there is a single moment that will help us understand Europe's energy security vulnerability to Russia, it's November of 2011. And it took place in Lubmin, a small town in northeastern Germany on the Baltic Sea. It's kind of a nice sort of uh, easygoing uh, seaside resort, the kind of place that some, you know, a fairly wealthy retired uh, German business person might get a second home and, and go in the summer. But it also happens to be the place where the Nord Stream gas pipelines from Russia make landfall in Germany. The Nord Stream pipeline is in operation. This was announced today in a festive ceremony in the Mecklenburg-Western Pomeranian town of Lubmin. And in 2011, the small town was transformed by this parade of high-ranking officials. They were all there to mark a deep economic link between Russia, Germany, and much of Europe. And that link was a 1,200-kilometer pipeline that would send tens of billions of cubic meters of gas to the EU every year. Almost everyone believed that this pipeline would be a positive diplomatic force. And we can hear this in a speech from then-German Chancellor Angela Merkel. Wir zeigen mit diesem Projekt... With this project, we show, also in the presence of so many representatives from European countries, that we feel sure of a secure and resilient partnership with Russia in the future. And I believe that this project is a perfect example of this. And it wasn't just the Chancellor. A lot of important political leaders were standing there alongside her, including the European Energy Commissioner. And they were all shaking hands with Dmitry Medvedev, who was then the Russian president. Now better known for the blood-curdling threats he likes to make on social media, threatening basically the destruction of the West and a nuclear war and all that kind of thing. But back in 2011, he was a very welcome guest in Lubmin because it was his country's gas that was going to start flowing through that pipeline. The pipeline will be able to transport an annual capacity of up to 55 billion cubic meters of natural gas and provide the European Union with gas from Russia for over 50 years. We can now look back with the benefit of hindsight and recognize what a hostage to fortune that was for the, for the, for the European leaders present, how much they were exposing themselves to the potential blackmail from Russia, where it was well known that energy was, was very sort of political, where, the, where Gazprom, the big gas company, was politically directed. But at the time, I think it was assumed that Russia would never touch the gas flow. Throughout the Cold War, they never really touched um, the gas the gas flows into Europe. From that standpoint, it was hard to conceive of a, of a political era where that would be possible. But now, from the perspective of 2023, here we are. Russian energy giant Gazprom has said that it will once again drastically cut gas supplies to EU countries through its main pipeline, Nord Stream 1. And this comes as fears of an acute gas crunch continues to grip Europe. So that vision for 50 years of secure energy supplies, it turned into 10. 
And then we saw the Nord Stream pipeline become a weapon of war after Russia attacked Ukraine in 2022. Authorities are investigating whether sabotage is the cause of leaks in the Nord Stream gas pipelines connecting Russia to Europe. Scientists recorded explosions in the Baltic Sea before detecting three simultaneous leaks. I just, I just think that um, that moment in Lubmin really represents a sort of a bit of a way marker in, in Europe's history and, and, and the kind of thing that would be unimaginable now. This is Charlie Cooper, a senior energy correspondent with Politico, and he traveled to Lubmin in the fall of 2022. This was right after the pipeline was shut down by Putin, and then there was this mysterious sabotage by an unknown actor. And when he was in Lubmin, he heard remorse about this tie to Russia. But he also heard this bit of hope, because he was there just in time to see this flurry of activity, with folks preparing the local port for a new flow of gas. There was a sense of some regret that this great economic project that Lubmin had been quite proud to be at the heart of had collapsed, you know, into terrible acrimony, basically. And some skepticism, I suppose, about, uh, about the town's future as, a, as, a, as an import point for U.S. for Qatari liquefied natural gas, which is now what it is, because it's now a place where there is a, a giant LNG tanker called the, the Neptune, which uh, is a floating storage and regasification unit, which can take uh, supercooled uh, LNG fuel, heat it up to the point it becomes gas again, then pump it into Europe's gas pipelines. And uh, I think it just, for me, represents the kind of in microcosm, that, that, that switchover that happened in Europe from gas flowing from the east and from Russia to gas flowing primarily from the west and the US and, and other places. Charlie calls Lubmin ground zero for Europe's energy crisis. He was there to witness this key moment in the region's radical shift away from Russian fossil gas. This was a decision to swiftly approve new terminals to pump liquefied natural gas from the US and the Middle East into the EU economy. This move averted a catastrophe, but it also raised new questions about risk. It's actually the risk that Europe's wider agenda is to is to leave gas behind, is to you know go for broke for for wind and for solar, and and also to to a significant extent for for nuclear. And some fear that almost to kind of justify the expense of all this infrastructure, some European governments might commit to gas for longer than they otherwise might have done. So there's a climate risk there as well. German Chancellor Olaf Scholz has called the Ukraine war a Zeitenwende, a turning point. But what kind of turning point are we talking about? When we look back at this moment 50 years from now, are we going to be saying that this was the moment that supercharged the clean energy transition? Or is it a crisis that made Europe more dependent on imported fossil fuels? Or will it be a bit of both? This is The Big Switch. I'm Dr. Melissa Lott, and I'm the Director of Research at Columbia University's SEPA Center on Global Energy Policy, and I study the technologies and systems that power our world. This is our fifth and final installment on Europe's energy crisis and how it's impacting our progress towards net zero emissions. In the previous four episodes, we explored the European energy crisis through the lens of Germany and Poland. And now we're taking a step back and asking, what are the consequences for the entire European bloc? And what does the energy transition in Europe mean for other parts of the world? This show is all about how we can rebuild the energy systems that are all around us to get to net zero. And in earlier seasons, we discussed the different pathways that we can take for electricity and transportation, buildings and industry. And a theme that came up time after time after time was trade-offs. Trade-offs in the energy sector. And there are a lot of them when it comes to this story. 
There is absolutely no doubt that the crisis is quickly bringing vast amounts of change. So in this episode, we're going to explore three big parts of this transition that are specific to energy supply. First, we're going to talk about the push to supercharge wind and solar and what this push says about the benefits and limits of what these technologies can do. Second, we're going to talk about the abrupt shift in where Europe gets fossil gas that it uses today and the new security vulnerabilities that it could create. And finally, we're going to talk about the vision to reuse all that gas infrastructure for hydrogen. This is an ambitious strategy with a lot of potential risks. And these were the three areas that became the focal points for European leaders in the days after Russia attacked Ukraine. In just two weeks, the course of our European history has changed, radically changed. It was early March 2022. This is 12 days after the invasion. Franz Timmermans, the executive vice president of the European Commission, was stepping on stage in Brussels to deliver a somber but energizing speech outlining a new plan, Repower EU. It is abundantly clear that we are too dependent on Russia for our energy needs. The answer to this concern for our security lies in renewable energy and diversification of supply. It's fair to say that Timmermans is one of the most powerful people in European politics. He's the key architect of something called Europe's Green Deal. This is a package of dozens of policies that was unveiled in 2019 to decarbonize Europe. And on March 8th of 2022, he was standing there with Kadri Simpson, the European Commissioner for Energy. She's also one of the most powerful people in energy, and she's tasked with implementing the Green Deal. And together, they unveiled a plan to go much further, much faster. We all agree that affordability, sustainability, and security concerns ultimately have the same answer, the Green Deal. Now, we will take it to the next level. Brussels is usually known for being a, a pretty slow, bureaucratic machine where it takes years to see changes and to really um, spark the, the action that's needed on the ground. But indeed, uh, this last year has been quite different. This is Anka Gorzu, a Brussels-based energy reporter at Cypher News. She watched this rapid policy response and was amazed at how quickly things were moving. The European Union already had this massive project called the European Green Deal, and it was already considered to be very ambitious. The war really, not only did it create a fundamental change in the European Union's relations with Russia, but it also decided to push the European Union even more and even faster in its decarbonization agenda. So we need to put millions more photovoltaic panels on the roofs of our homes, businesses and farms. We must also double the installation rate of heat pumps over the next five years. This is low-hanging fruit. In addition to this, we need to speed up permitting procedures to grow our on- and offshore wind capacity and roll out large-scale solar projects. This is a matter of overriding public interest. When we look back, I think what has happened with Russia's uh, decision to invade Ukraine will be a catalyst for the European Union's energy transition and its faster embrace of renewable energy. 
Europe has a long history with renewables, as we've already explored in this season. And we have many European countries like Germany to thank for helping to spark the modern renewables industry. But this was different. In March of 2023, EU countries agreed to more than double the amount of renewables that we built across the block in the coming years as a part of Repower EU. And here's my colleague, Anne-Sophie Corbeau, who's a global research scholar at the Center on Global Energy Policy. So we are talking about having wind uh, going from about 200-something gigawatt to 510 gigawatt by 2030. We are talking about solar also going from about, I think, 210 gigawatt in 2022 to 600 gigawatt by 2030 as well. I think on solar, given that we had added about 40 gigawatt in 2022, we should be able to reach those targets. For wind, we would need to add twice more as we are adding today. So this is much more complicated. Wind and solar are an obvious top choice for responding to this crisis. They have their trade-offs, of course, like anything else does, but they are mature technologies that we can build quickly. And European companies are really good at building them. In a pinch, I think we can say that renewables, particularly solar, really stepped up to the challenges that were presented by Repower EU. So if we look at 2022, solar capacity in the European Union grew by almost 25%, adding an additional 42 gigawatts. That's the equivalent capacity of around 12.5 million European homes. And this growth was mostly driven by homeowners who were looking to insulate themselves from spiking energy prices. And renewables hit an important milestone when it came to delivering electricity to the grid. The good news is that renewables are already there. Wind and solar overtook natural gas for the first time uh, last year to generate a fifth of the block's electricity. And that was a record amount. But if you look behind those numbers, there's a catch. While solar grew tremendously, emissions climbed slightly. And this was because of a simultaneous increase in coal consumption. And this is probably only a short-term bump in emissions, but it's not something the EU wanted to see. And wind installations in 2022, well, they barely moved compared to the year before. And that's partly due to the process for actually getting these wind projects approved and then connected to the grid. The real problem is about the planning and the permitting. And permitting is so problematic. I mean, it takes ages to to get, you know, the approval for wind or solar farms and also uh, for the transmission lines. Because, you know, if you have a wind plant, uh, it's not particularly useful. It's not connected anywhere. So even though renewables are easier to build than, let's say, a nuclear power plant, large projects are still surprisingly slow to get built, as we heard in episode three. And permitting is a big part of the problem, as Kadri Simpson explicitly addressed when announcing the Repower EU plan. We cannot talk about renewables revolution if getting a permit to build a wind park takes seven years. It is time to treat these projects as being in the overriding public interest, because they are. And we should be ready to consider changing our current rules if they are holding us back. Europe can raise its targets all at once. But permitting reform comes down to individual member states and the local politics where these projects will get built. And as Anka Gorzu explains, that's not the only obstacle. Supply chain dependencies could also slow things down. There are supply chain problems. Uh, This has been top of the agenda here in Brussels um, with EU countries discussing some of these key things, including how do we source the 
uh, critical raw materials that we need? How do we loosen our dependence on China? So just to tell you that the debate is, is taking a different proportion. The third trade-off for renewables is the obvious one. They just don't generate electricity all of the time. We have decades of experience building out wind and solar, and we've developed some pretty sophisticated ways of managing large amounts of renewables on the grid. But despite all this, gas still makes up 20% of the EU's grid mix, and that is partly to back up renewables when the wind isn't blowing and the sun isn't shining. There is no doubt that renewables are set up for a massive expansion. The International Energy Agency expects them to account for 90% of global electricity growth for the next five years, with a lot of that coming from Europe. But gas just isn't going to go away overnight. I think it very much shows that we're still in a transition, even though there is this push for having more renewable energy much quicker the reality is that today, like it or not, gas, natural gas, will still play an important role because renewable energy is also intermittent energy. And I think that's why gas was playing such an important role and is playing an important role. And, and uh, rightfully so, I think critics are, are pointing out that Germany's uh, decision to invest billions of euros in two new liquefied natural gas terminals, that raises the question of if you do that, is that going to still incentivize you to shift as quickly to renewables? Or are you still going to get hooked on gas, but from somewhere else? I think there are just various pieces of the puzzle and um, it will still take some time. And that brings us to another pillar of the Repower EU plan, replacing the gas that has been coming from Russia as quickly as possible. Putin's war on Ukraine has made it absolutely clear that we need to move even faster, to reshape the European energy system and end our dangerous dependence on Russian fossil fuels as soon as possible. Before the war, Russia accounted for half of European gas imports, and there were fears really early on, which turned out to be correct, that Vladimir Putin would turn off gas supply in response to European sanctions. So replacing those Russian fossil fuels was a huge focus of the crisis response. By the end of this year, we can replace 100 BCM of gas imports from Russia. That is two-thirds of what we import from them. It's hard, bloody hard, but it's possible if we're willing to go further and faster than we've done before. And so Europe turned to something called liquefied natural gas, or LNG. It's a form of natural gas that's brought in on large ships from all over the world, including the United States and the Middle East. And in just a year, Germany built three LNG terminals in the towns of Wilhelmshaven, Brunsbüttel, and Lubmin. Germany is one step closer to ending its reliance on Russian gas after a huge ship containing liquefied natural gas arrived at the port of Wilhelmshaven on the North Sea. And in Lubmin, Charlie Cook reported on the scramble to bring this gas in as fast as possible. The change that's happened in in Lubmin really is a kind of microcosm for the, the wider change in, in Europe. And it, it's incredibly visible on the ground in Lubmin. There's this now this vast uh, LNG tanker. It's a key part of the infrastructure that will allow the processing of the fuel to take place. Germany is counting on LNG as an alternative to the natural gas it used to receive via pipeline from Russia. And in January, they, had, uh, they actually had an inauguration ceremony for the terminal. 
it felt like a full circle moment because you had a very, very similar photo opportunity where the current German Chancellor, uh, Olaf Scholz, was there turning the wheel, turning the valve to, to, to switch on the gas supply, just like his, his predecessor, Angela Merkel, back in 2011, had done the, the similar photo op shoulder to shoulder with the Russian president, uh, Dmitry Medvedev, to sort of symbolize the turning on of the gas supply from, from Russia. So an extraordinary kind of full circle moment captures in microcosm the change that's happened for how Germany, for how Europe more widely, uh, gets the, the bulk of its gas supply. This massive switch in European gas is fascinating and also complicated. Some of it came down to Europe's strategy, while other parts of it came down to luck. In terms of strategy, fast-tracking approval of liquefied gas terminals allowed Europe to be ready to import LNG when the gas stopped flowing from Russian pipelines in the fall of 2022. But a lot of stuff happened that Europe didn't have direct control over, including a mild winter that actually softened heating demand and also lower demand from the world's biggest consumer of gas, China, because of COVID lockdowns. And also, the U.S. gas industry in particular had a lot of gas and was ready to send it to the highest bidder. And the result of all of this was that Europe was able to shift off of Russian fossil fuels, but still get the gas it needed. So I asked Dan Sophie about how this whole LNG operation worked. Yeah, this is a 101 of energy security. You always need to have more supply diversity. You know, from a route point of view, from a sources point of view, that's very important. So you talked about how we would have to build plants that actually allow us to get natural gas out of a country that wants to export it. What do we need to do on the other side of it? So if Europe wants to receive more of it, what options does it have? Well, you know, before the crisis, we thought we had enough LNG import capacity. So basically what we have is you have an L what we call an LNG import terminal, which we gasify. So it transforms from liquid to gas, the LNG received. And we thought we had more than enough. However, when you have to replace, you know, 140 BCM of Russian pipeline gas, then suddenly you realize, oh, you do not have enough. And on top of that, it's not located in the right places because we have a lot which is located in Liberia. So this is how suddenly Europe was racing in order to build what we call the floating storage and regasification units, FSRUs. And these plants can be built in a few months, uh, provided that, of course, the FSRUs, which are in fact LNG cargoes that have been transformed in order to regasify the LNG. So we were able in Europe to get access to some existing LNG uh, floating storage and regasification units. And we were also able to accelerate the permitting process in order to build where the jetties, the pipelines, in order to connect these FSRUs. So it was done in a record time. How much Russian fossil fuel energy is Europe still using? Um, and how much leverage does Russia still have because of that? So no more coal. Um, still a little bit of oil and oil products because we have some landlocked countries which said, I mean, I'm sorry, but I can't do without uh, Russian oil in the very short term. There is no way I can replace that, like Hungary, for example. And in terms of gas, we are still importing about 20 BCM of pipeline gas and about 20 BCM of LNG. So 40 BCM compared to 155 before. So still some dependency. There is still danger, the possibility that, you know, Putin decides one day no more gas for Europe, in which case, you know, our uh, um, supply and demand balance would be even tighter. But he has much less leverage than he had before. That's for sure. 
Like renewables, this is another success story with some trade-offs. In this case, the trade-offs are much more consequential for the planet. The obvious success was that Europeans had enough gas to both heat their homes and to keep some industry running. But the trade-off was also obvious. Natural gas is a major contributor to climate change. Europe wants to cut greenhouse gas emissions by 55% by 2030, and also hit net zero by 2050. Building a lot of new gas infrastructure is not exactly compatible with that target. Which is why the third part of the Repower EU plan leans really hard into hydrogen. Some believe that existing pipelines and this new LNG infrastructure means that Europe is now poised for a surge in green hydrogen production. That is a spin put on it by some governments. With more LNG and pipeline imports, we can replace 60 BCM of Russian gas within the next 12 months. We can also increase the production and import of renewable hydrogen. A hydrogen accelerator will develop integrated infrastructure and offer all member states access to affordable renewable hydrogen. 20 million tons of hydrogen can replace 50 BCM of Russian gas. We don't really know how viable it will be to convert LNG infrastructure to hydrogen. Uh, in theory, it's possible. It will cost a hell of a lot, that's for sure. Along with questions about the cost and the viability of building out hydrogen infrastructure, there is also a debate that is raging about how hydrogen is produced. How green is hydrogen? That's the question the European Commission needs to resolve as it resumes talks on renewable energy targets today. At issue is whether or not hydrogen derived from nuclear power can be designated as renewable. France, heavily reliant on atomic energy, has been lobbying hard in favour of that. But Germany and Spain oppose it. Never say never when it comes to human ingenuity, particularly in the energy sector, but uh, I think it's, it should be taken with a pinch of salt. Hydrogen is probably the most difficult piece of the European energy plan, both for security and also decarbonization. So why is it such an attention-grabbing resource? And what do we need it for anyway? To understand how it all might work or fall apart, I turned to Aditya Bashayam, a hydrogen expert at Bloomberg New Energy Finance. So I'm looking at the economics of moving hydrogen around in various forms, whether that's in pipelines, uh, in existing natural gas pipelines or new built hydrogen pipelines, or convert it to new fuels like ammonia, methanol, and so on. First, let's pause for a quick primer on hydrogen. As some of you might remember, we did a hydrogen episode in May of 2022, and if you haven't heard it, it's definitely worth revisiting that episode. But hydrogen is seen by some as a Swiss army knife for industrial decarbonization. We use it today to make things like fertilizer, to refine petroleum and chemicals, or to treat metals. And today it's mostly made by reacting natural gas with high-temperature steam. This process is called steam methane reforming. But you can also make hydrogen through a process called electrolysis. This is where you use electricity to split water, so the H2 and O become hydrogen and oxygen. And the hope is that we can use a lot of electricity from renewables and other zero-carbon power sources to run that process. And that would allow us to create a lot of clean hydrogen. And in theory, that hydrogen could be used for a whole lot of things, including making the heat that we need for industry, using it as a fuel for heavy transport or aviation, or you could even run it through a fuel cell and turn it back into electricity when you need it. 
Europe already had a target to produce 10 million tons of clean hydrogen by 2030, but targets have been ramped up in a big way. And that gives hydrogen watchers like Aditya a lot to focus on. So I asked him about the viability of Europe's ambitions. Once the invasion of Ukraine happened, Europe, saw, uh, or particularly the European Union, saw um, uh, hydrogen as one of the key levers to reduce its dependence on Russian fossil fuels, particularly natural gas. One of the key levers of doing so was introducing a lot of renewable hydrogen. So what happened was Europe proposed to double its target from 10 million metric tons in 2030 to 20 million metric tons in 2030. Half of this coming from domestic production and half of this coming from imports. Uh, The point of this was to replace pretty much all the natural gas that is being used in heavy industry today to uh, produce hydrogen uh, as a feedstock. And then also to replace any other fossil fuels that currently are being imported from Russia and overseas, but some of it in transport fuels, some of it in other uh, industrial sectors and power generation as well. Can you talk me through how, like, can we just put hydrogen into a natural gas pipeline or do we have to do things to make it ready for that? Sure, that's a great question. Um, It really depends on what type of pipeline we're talking about. So very broadly, the natural gas system is um, split up into very broad sections. One are these big transmission pipelines. You can think of them of of your highways, right? These are transmission uh, pipelines. They're made of steel. They're these massive pipelines that move hydrogen from or natural gas today from one region to the other or across borders. Uh, Then there's distribution pipelines. These are smaller pipelines, more often than not now made out of plastics. And they distribute your natural gas from uh, the city gates to individual homes eventually. And along the way, the pressure of the gas is reduced until it reaches your home. Um, To introduce hydrogen into an existing pipeline, it it first needs to be um, conditioned, right? It needs to be pressurized to, to, if it's a transmission pipeline, to AT bar uh, from its atmospheric conditions um, and then can be introduced. The big problem with hydrogen is that it has this ability to embrittle steel, so it can cross cracks in in existing steel materials, which uh, means you need to be careful about how you introduce hydrogen. So there is ways to come around that, which is reducing the pressure of the hydrogen gas uh, and operating the pipeline slightly differently. But in general, what we found in Europe, for example, is that a lot of existing pipelines could, could run on hydrogen. The problem really is on the end-use side, or is in people's homes. If you're thinking about introducing hydrogen into the natural gas network, uh, people's homes, uh, boilers, heat networks, and so on, have a maximum percentage of hydrogen that they can allow before the equipment needs to be changed. Same for industrial equipment and same for for the chemical sector. There's a maximum tolerance of hydrogen. That's really the challenge rather than the material of of the pipelines themselves. And how do we make sure that the hydrogen that is used to replace natural gas is really zero carbon? That's a that's a great question. I think first and foremost is uh, what we need is policies that incentivize um, as close to zero emission production of, of hydrogen as possible. That means if hydrogen is produced from renewables, that uh, that the hydrogen comes from off-grid connections, or if it's uh, connected to the grid, it, it is matched in space and time with the renewable energy generation. Or if it's produced from natural gas, that the carbon capture actually ensures that most of the emissions are captured on site, but also upstream in the production and extraction of the natural gas itself. Um, 
in terms of the renewables part, there's a few more things that we need to look at to make sure that hydrogen is truly zero carbon. One is that it comes from renewables that are newly built or recently built just for the hydrogen production. Because one of the big fears with hydrogen is that it will take a lot of the zero carbon electricity that, we are, uh, that we're generating away from other potential uses where it might be more valuable. So a lot of uh, the policies that we're starting to see now in Europe as a first mover, but the US is thinking about the same thing, is incentivizing production of hydrogen from new renewable resources. And at the same time, matching that hydrogen production to renewable energy generation. So matching meaning in space and time. In space, so that the hydrogen generation is close to where the renewables are generated, so you minimize the transport uh, of, of, that renewable, of those renewable electrons. And in time, so that hydrogen is only generated when the renewables are also generating renewable electricity. So you're not, for example, if you're connected to the grid, that you're not producing hydrogen from fossil fuel electricity. So what is the best case for a hydrogen economy in Europe look like? When you picture it in your mind, what do you see? Sure. Uh, the best case would be for hydrogen to be supply and demand to grow in line with what's needed for a net zero scenario, which basically means hydrogen supply grows from currently about 5 million tons that is produced uh, uh, as a dedicated production to 50 million tons by, 2030, uh, by 2050, all of that from clean sources. And then that hydrogen is used particularly in uh, existing industri industrial uses to produce fertilizers, to, pre uh, to green chemicals, to produce green steel, and then for tra heavy transport, particularly ships and planes, where there's no real alternatives to using synthetic hydrogen-based fuels. That's the best case. What does the worst case look like? The worst case looks like... Um, we get bogged down in regulation and the definitions and hydrogen supply never really picks up and demand for that hydrogen never never really picks up because the economics don't really work out in most most use cases we only use hydrogen to decarbonize a percentage of existing fertilizer production a percentage of existing chemicals uses and maybe a few ships here and there a few planes here and there but not much more than that there is enough supply coming online to do a bit of that, uh, but supply will need to grow further to be able to decarbonize along a best-case scenario with net zero. So in both cases, there will be some hydrogen development. The best case just uh, illustrates that, that you need much more. You see why we're so obsessed with trade-offs? Things are moving so fast, and the stakes are so high. I mean, these are trade-offs at a grand scale. And those impacts are not just going to be felt in Europe, because this entire crisis and how the EU responds to it has consequences around the world. There are positive ones for sure. The International Energy Agency estimates that renewables around the globe will grow by 2,400 gigawatts in five years. That is more renewable power than the world has built in the last 20 years. But there have also been some pretty stark negative impacts, and they have direct human and climate consequences. The war in Ukraine has upended energy markets. In particular, demand for liquefied natural gas has surged as Europe seeks alternatives to Russian imports. But it wasn't just a European crisis. It's global in the sense that it's almost every country in the world affected. Europe was facing an energy crisis. In response, Europe and its wealthier governments could afford to buy up a lot of the world's natural gas supplies that pushed the price of natural gas to very high levels. But while European countries help drive up LNG prices, many emerging economies can't afford the fuel anymore. 
Demand tumbled 19% in Pakistan, 17% in India, and 10% in Bangladesh, where energy shortages are now becoming more common. Now, last week, Bangladesh suffered its worst blackouts in nearly a decade, with 100 million people without power. If you were in China, for example, you were saying, well, we need something to use instead of gas, so we're gonna use coal instead. Coal went to record levels. And then if you were in a lower-income country or a middle-income country, um, think of emerging market countries like Pakistan or Bangladesh or certainly developing countries in Africa, they struggle to afford any energy at all. This energy crisis is having really devastating global effects, especially on some of the poorest and most vulnerable in the world. This is my colleague, Jason Bordoff. He's the founding director of the Center on Global Energy Policy here at Columbia University. And he spends a lot of his time thinking about the many intertwined geopolitical, security, and climate impacts of shifts in energy markets. It's been more than a year since the crisis began, and over last winter, Europe averted a worst-case scenario. But there could be many more unforeseen consequences to come, and they won't be contained to one particular region, and that is the reality of our energy transition. To think through these impacts, I sat down with Jason to put some historical context on the impacts that we've been covering in this series. How do the oil price shocks that we saw in the 70s compare to what is happening right now? What are the key ways that it's similar or different? Well, the global energy crisis we're seeing today has certainly eased. But if you're talking about what we saw over the last year, and particularly at its worst, uh, you know, about a year ago, what's different today is uh, this is really, in some ways, the first global energy crisis. And it is all of energy. The 1970s was an oil crisis. This is an energy crisis. Uh, it is affecting natural gas around the world. It caused a spike in oil prices. It caused coal prices to go to record levels, even though renewables are cheap and we are and should be moving uh, away from coal. Uh, but it affected almost every fuel source. If you think about, and that's partly because Russia is so dominant in almost everything. It's the one of the world's largest producers of everything, oil, gas, coal, even the enriched uranium that powers nuclear plants. The United States still today depends heavily on Russia for enriched uranium and a lot of minerals that we depend on uh, and other commodities. So it, it really affected the whole world and it affected all parts of, and almost all parts of energy in a way that we had not seen before. When you are talking about energy security with different folks, what do other folks mean when they say that phrase? Like, what is energy security? And how do you think we should be thinking differently about that term? Yeah, I think energy security has traditionally been defined as the availability of sufficient supplies at affordable prices. That's easy to say, but that means something very different if you're in the United States than if you're in a low-income country that uses barely any energy at all and where people still struggle for basic access to energy for their daily needs. So it is, it, it is a term that, that means different things to, to different people. But at a basic level, you know, energy is a core need. It meets basic fundamental needs. Without, without energy, the, your ability to, to, to work, to, to travel, to refrigerate food and medicine, to, uh, to have productive agriculture, to, to industrialize, all of those things are severely uh, negatively impacted. So energy security means you're able to reliably afford the energy that we need to keep the modern economy flowing and hopefully to develop and grow your economy more quickly. So you talk about potential 
potholes in the road to net zero and just bumps in the road, whatever we want to call them, just things that could get really tricky. And one of the things that I think about, and I know you think about, is as we start to use less gas and oil, and we think about the role of the producers that stay in the mix, the pie is getting smaller. So maybe every individual producer ends up having a larger slice of it. This seems like a security and geopolitics question and potential bumps that could happen in that. Can you talk me through what this bigger slice, smaller pie scenario might mean for energy security and how we can avoid scenarios like what we're seeing play out in Europe right now? I think when we've talked about the geopolitics of the energy transition, the conversation has often focused on an end state, an end state when we get to net zero. People assume that means zero oil, and it doesn't. You know, the estimates vary. It could be around 30. It could be around 40 million barrels, but it's much less than today. And then you say, well, what does a world look like where we're using very little oil, and everyone assumes petrostates like Saudi Arabia collapse, and their business model doesn't work, and there's geopolitical instability? That may be true, but that is decades away. And what I've been interested in is thinking about the next 10 years, the next 15 years, the next 20 years. What's the process of transition look like? When we start to move in that direction, again, which we are not yet, and the world's maybe not using 100 million barrels of oil, but 70 or 80 or 90, those are still pretty big numbers. Oil will still be a significant share of the global economy. Oil price shocks will still matter, but gradually they may matter less. And what will that mean for the geopolitical influence of dominant petrostates? Uh, think Saudi Arabia or the United Arab Emirates or something. So you might imagine that as the pie starts to shrink rather than increase, market forces will determine who falls off the table first. The people that will continue to produce oil will be the ones that can produce oil most cheaply and hopefully at lowest emissions. And actually, the Gulf Arab states look really good on both of those score. So you could imagine a world, and this is consistent with projections from the International Energy Agency and others, where the total pie is shrinking but still quite big, but the percentage of oil coming from traditional petrostates or from OPEC countries is going up, not down. And I think an interesting question, especially when large producing countries like the U.S. or Canada have a lot of oil to produce, is whether policymakers are going to be okay with that outcome. Are they going to be okay 10 years, 15 years, 20 years from now with the idea that U.S. oil is falling falling in production, Canadian oil is falling in production, uh, and, the, and the oil that's continuing to flow and the total share that's coming from OPEC countries um, is, can, is going up, not down. There's a big question about whether people are going to be investing in 10-year, 20-year, 30-year payback projects for oil supply when it's the writing is on the wall. We're not off of oil yet, but you can see where we're going to be in a few decades. And if we fail, if we get that mismatch wrong, if we fail to synchronize declines in oil supply with declines in oil demand, and supply falls faster than demand does, the consequence of that is tight markets, higher prices that are harmful economically and geopolitically, and actually more, not less, geopolitical influence for the countries that can temper oil price shocks and help with gasoline prices at the pump. The process of transition itself could create a whole host of energy security risks and geopolitical risks. And even if you do get to an end state anywhere close to net zero emissions, as I hope we do, that new clean energy economy will create its own new energy security risks that we need to carefully manage. To be clear, this is not an argument 
to slow down the energy transition. We need a much faster energy transition. But if we're not clear-eyed about how hard it'll be, and if we're not clear-eyed about the risks and bumps we face along the way, the consequence could be more energy insecurity, more challenges paying electricity bills, more volatility, more power outages. And I think that risks undermining the broad-based popular support we need for the energy transition. So the idea is to really identify carefully what the risks and bumps are along the way in a multi-decade process of transition and then try to identify the policy and other tools we need to mitigate those risks and smooth that pathway of transition to help us move more faster in the low-carbon direction. To conclude, Repower EU is our plan to break our dependency on Russian gas and to find freedom in our energy's choices. We can do it, and we can do it fast. All we need is the courage and grit to get us there. If ever there was a time to do it, it's now. How important do you think the next few years are to the overall net zero transition? And what do you think of in terms of things that could happen that could accelerate the transition and then other things that could slow it down? So when you're thinking about the energy transition, I mean, there are things which stand out. So first, we need to absolutely, you know, reduce demand where we can. The second thing is that we absolutely need to double down or maybe quadruple down on the renewable expansion. This is absolutely crucial because we need to decarbonize the power generation sector. And I am actually quite worried when I'm hearing, you know, some countries which are banking more on coal, like China is building more coal, like Pakistan said they want to use more coal. I mean, this is really worrying. Then you also need to develop hydrogen. I think this is still quite important in order to decarbonize the hardware bit sectors. And we need also to make more progress on carbon capture and storage because, you know, we need to have a way to go negative in terms of the emission for some sectors. So that is absolutely essential. So we need progress in those four areas and it's absolutely needed. The Big Switch is produced by Columbia University's SEPA Center on Global Energy Policy in partnership with PostScript Media. If you appreciate the reporting and the storytelling that we do here, you can rate and review us on Apple and Spotify. You can also find all of our current and past episodes there. And send a link to a colleague or friend who you think would like it. The show is produced by Daniel Waldorf, Dan Ackerman, Camille Stennis, Anne Bailey, and Stephen Lacey. Rachel Woldholtz was a contributing producer to this episode, and Anne Bailey is our senior editor. Sean Marquand wrote our theme song and mixed the episodes. And a special thanks to our Columbia team, Natalie Volk, Hugh Lee, Jen Wu, and Harry Kennard. The show is hosted by me, Dr. Melissa Lott. Thank you so much for listening.